welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce the moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop update on marginal zone lymphoma. And this is a very important topic, and it's something that I know many of you are very interested in hearing all about. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from TG Therapeutics, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and other programs as well that we do at Cancer Care. And I also would like to acknowledge that we have a lot of you on the call today. There's over 151 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Iraq, France, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. Um, now, before I introduce our first speaker, um, we would like to ask you to just answer a few questions for us coming into the program. It's very important. It will help us. Um, if Those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to address the questions. Um, and so I'm going to start with our first question, um, and those live streaming will be able to then address those questions. On a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the role of staging, location, and subtypes of marginal zone lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the treatment options for marginal zone lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the treatment for relapsed refractory marginal zone lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand how to manage the symptoms, side effects, and discomfort of marginal zone lymphoma in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. Understand the significance of clinical trials for marginal zone lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It will help us to better plan programs so we understand what you understand about marginal zone lymphoma as you um, enter this program. And now it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. David Strauss. And Dr. Strauss is attending physician, lymphoma service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of clinical medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Strauss will be addressing an overview of marginal zone lymphoma, including staging and location in the context of COVID-19, subtypes of marginal zone lymphoma, review of treatment options, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and follow-up care. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Strauss. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to join you today to talk a, a, a bit about marginal zone lymphoma. Marginal zone lymphoma is uh, one of the uh, uh, low-grade or slowly-growing uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Uh, it comprises about 5 to 10% of all the non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Like the majority of the non-Hodgkin lymphomas, it's a malignancy of what are called B lymphocytes. So B lymphocytes, the lymphocytes in general operate the body's immune system, one of the major ways the body combats infection, 
there are a number of different types of lymphocytes that do different things in the body's immune defense. Uh, the uh, B lymphocytes uh, are the most common malignant cell in lymphoma, both Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin, uh, and they develop into cells called plasma cells that go from lymph nodes or blood to the bone marrow and produce proteins that are called immune globulins and specific ones are uh, created in response to infection that are called antibodies. So the majority of uh, the non-Hodgkin lymphomas and Hodgkin lymphoma, about 90% are B-cell malignancies, and marginal zone lymphoma is one of them. The term marginal zone lymphoma refers to the resemblance of the malignant lymphocytes in these lymphomas to lymphocytes in normal spleens in a region that's called the marginal zone. There are three uh, categories of marginal zone lymphoma. The most common is those uh, marginal zone lymphomas of sites other than lymph nodes. Lymph nodes are the major site for most lymphomas. Uh, uh, we refer to lymphomas that occur in a different site other than a lymph node or spleen as extranodal. And uh, this is the most common category of marginal zone lymphoma comprising uh, about uh, uh, 10 to 20% of lymphomas in these sites. And in some sites, even higher percentage. For example, in the stomach, uh, marginal zone lymphomas are roughly 50% of the lymphomas in the stomach. Also, lymphomas in the conjunctiva and the eye socket, what's called the adnexal zone uh, uh, related to the eye, a high percentage of those are marginal zone lymphomas and so on. Uh, those that occur in the uh, GI tract, most commonly the stomach, are sometimes referred to as mucosa-associated lymphoid tumors, and uh, these include the lymphomas of the stomach, which is the most common site, lymphomas uh, of the conjunctiva, which is a membrane that lines the front of the eye and the eye, inside of the eyelids, and the area behind the eye and the eye sockets uh, or the tear duct, uh, tear glands, so-called lacrimal glands, these are called, these are uh, a common site of uh, extranodal marginal zone lymphoma. And then there are others, including the lung, uh, uh, the thyroid, um, and uh, in, the, in uh, the Middle East, uh, Northern Africa, Southern Africa, and the Far East, there's a type of lymphoma that involves the small bowel, which is called immunoproliferative uh, small bowel disease, or IPSID. Sometimes it's called Mediterranean lymphoma, uh, and that is seen in that region. Some of these are associated with... Um, with infections, most notably the uh, marginal zone lymphomas of the stomach. Um, uh, and these are associated with a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori, which is also associated with stomach ulcers and with uh, gastric or stomach carcinomas. So the carcinomas of the stomach are actually malignancies of the cells in the stomach, lining the stomach. The lymphomas that involve the stomach are really not of the tissue of the stomach, but they're really in the wall of the stomach. There's lymph, lymph, lymphocytes and lymph tissue, and this is what arises, uh, can cause uh, the lymphomas in this region. So uh, actually, uh, eradication of uh, the helicobacterial infection with antibiotics can result in regression, sometimes very long-term regressions and even cures of gastric malt lymphomas. Usually, though, if they are uh, 
this is usually more commonly in the early stages of the disease. With more advanced disease, it's less common. Um, there are some other infections that have been associated in some places, though not so much in the U.S., with various infections. For example, hepatitis C has been associated, or hepatitis B has been associated with marginal zone lymphomas of the stomach, not reported here so much, but more in Europe. Chlamydia, which can, is a, a cause of infections in the uh, in the uh, in the vagina and the and the urethra, uh, a form of chlamydia again reported mostly in Europe has been associated with the conjunctival and uh, tear gland and uh, eye socket lymphomas. Not so much in this country. And uh, Campylobacter is a type of uh, bacteria that has been associated with the Mediterranean small bowel lymphomas. So sometimes uh, treatments with antibiotics with these things or with anti-infecting uh, uh, drugs, infection drugs, has caused clearing of these. Um, the other, uh, the, the second most common type are what are called splenic marginal zone lymphomas. Uh, these um, uh, are usually involved a spleen and bone marrow and blood. Uh, sometimes lymph nodes are involved, but usually they're not very large lymph nodes. They're very sort of minimal involvement. Um, and then the least common type, maybe 10% or so of the marginal zone lymphomas, which again is only 10 to 25 to 10% of all the non-Hodgkin non lymphomas, 10% of those are what are called nodal marginal zone lymphomas, which involve lymph nodes principally and not other uh, organs or tissues. Uh, whether this is really an entity uh, or uh, marginal zone lymphoma under the microscope using the test we have is sometimes almost in this site a diagnosis of exclusion. It's not this, it's not that, it's consistent with marginal zone lymphoma. And actually we are going to be doing a project really to see if this really is a biologic uh, entity or or a um, just kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. So these are very slowly growing lymphomas. Uh, often they don't require treatment. For example, we've recently reported our experience with marginal zone lymphomas of the lung. Uh, I have followed patients for years and never had to treat them. They are associated sometimes with autoimmune diseases, uh, some rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and, and uh, things like that, and also chronic lung infections. People who smoke, who have bronchiectasis, bronch chronic bronchitis, are, are more prone to get these. The uh, diagnosis can be made. Sometimes there's one site, sometimes there are a number of sites. People can have infections, and it's sometimes it's very hard to tell what's lymphoma and what's infection. We have a very uh, conservative approach to this, and as I say, some patients, many patients, are, are never have to be treated. Um, sometimes and very often, uh, marginal zone lymphomas are localized to one area. Um, so a word about staging, uh, we use a modification of the Ann Arbor staging classification for Hodgkin lymphoma where there are uh, four stages. Disease that's localized to one lymph node or one site that's not a lymph node, extranodal site, is called stage one. Stage two is lymph nodes and or spleen either above or below the diaphragm, the muscle that divides the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity, so lower body, upper body. Uh, so in either one of these regions, two or more sites would be stage two. Stage three would be lymph nodes and spleen on both sides of the diaphragm. And stage four would be extranodal site, usually with lymph nodes. In, uh, in non-Hodgkin lymphomas, but not Hodgkin lymphomas, solitary tumors can be seen in extranodal sites without lymph node involvement, not very common with Hodgkin lymphoma. 
And so uh, sites that can be involved just with a solitary mass are, include the stomach, the skin, the thyroid gland, uh, and sometimes the lung. So treatment for these are often local. Uh, if you know these things can be excised, a lung lesion that's just a single lesion if it can be completely excised, and that kind of is the diagnosis and the treatment. Similarly, sometimes skin lesions can be completely uh, taken out. Um, the other form of local treatment uh, is radiation therapy, which is very good for local control. And a lot of these extranodal uh, lymphomas may recur in the same organ. For example, skin lymphomas rarely recur in other sites than the skin. So you have a single lesion, you excise it, nothing happens. A year or so later, you develop uh, other sites in the skin. Um, so uh, we use uh, radiation therapy for local disease, sometimes excision. For disease that's beyond a local site, stage two, three, or four, uh, we, again, uh, use a conservative approach. I mentioned the example of the lymphomas of the lung where people will have lesions in their lungs which you know if there's one it can be completely excised and you're you're done in other cases there'll be multiple things in one or both lungs and we have learned that you don't have to treat them and necessarily initially and some patients really go for years i've had patients that follow for 20 years and never had to treat and this is also true of some of the other uh Marginal zone lymphomas. Uh, marginal zone lymphomas of the stomach, which are most uh, common, our uh, first uh, approach would be to eradicate the Helicobacter pylori if it is associated with the uh, lymphoma of the stomach. Not all cases are, but when it is, the first approach is antibiotics. And then for persistent disease, which is awful, often one local region, uh, we use radiation therapy. Uh, sometimes surgery has been done. Uh, we don't do that so often. Marginal zone lymphomas of the spleen, initial treatment was uh, splenectomy, and sometimes this was the diagnosis. They'd take out the spleen. Nowadays, we use systemic treatment. So for Cases that need treatment, many of them, maybe the majority even, are just observed and, and really don't require treatment. Probably the frontline treatment that's most widely used is the antibody rituximab, uh, which is directed against uh, a receptor on the surface of B lymphocytes called CD20. Uh, rather than do splenectomies for the marginal zone lymphomas of the spleen, we usually start with rituximab. And for other areas where there are multiple sites of involvement where a local treatment isn't appropriate, the front line probably would be rituximab. This can, uh, chemotherapy agents can be added to rituximab, most commonly drugs called alkylating agents, uh, the oldest one in use is cyclophosphamide, often in combination with rituximab and sometimes steroids such as prednisone. Uh, bendamustine is, is a newer alkylating agent. And more recently, we have targeted agents, uh, which I think uh, Dr. Uh, Rutherford will talk about in more detail, but uh, these are small molecules that are well absorbed in pill form and attack uh, chemical pathways in cell, in tumor cells, cancer cells that drive their growth. So blockage of these is another anti-cancer treatment. Two of these drugs have been approved for marginal zone lymphoma after frontline treatment, usually with rituximab or rituximab and chemotherapy. One is abrutinib, which is a, uh, a B-cell receptor inhibitor, and the other is ibrenalidin. Um, 
Imbrilisib, uh, which umbrilisib, which is a blocker of a pathway uh, uh, directed by an enzyme called uh, phospholinositol three kinase or P, uh, P, uh, PI three kinase, and again, these are approved uh, as second line or greater treatment. So uh, I really, uh, I know that Dr. Rutherford is going to talk a lot about managing symptoms, some of the other things, and, they're, they're, you know, I've taken up a lot of time on background, so I think I will really um, turn it over to her. I think I'm maybe even a little bit over my allotted time. So thank you very uh, much you. for your attention, and we'll be happy to answer questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Strauss. That was very comprehensive and really a wonderful introduction to marginal zone lymphoma and all its treatments and excellent. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so th thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Rutherford. And Dr. Rutherford is the John P. Leonard um, M.D. Gwartzman Family Research Scholar in Lymphoma, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College, Cornell University. And Dr. Rutherford will be addressing treatment for relapsed refractory marginal zone lymphoma, key questions to ask your healthcare team, the important role of clinical trials in the context of COVID-19, how research contributes to treatment options, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, Dr. Strauss, for that great introduction, very thorough. Um, so what I'm going to start with is treatment for relapse and refractory marginal zone lymphoma, and um, I appreciate Dr. Strauss starting to introduce this because it's been such an exciting area um, in all lymphoma types, but specifically marginal zone lymphoma in the past um, year to two years, we we have two new what we call novel targeted agents that are approved for marginal zone lymphoma that we can use um, that allows people to take their medicine at home and um, you know really not have to come to the doctor's often as off office uh, as often and really likely improve the quality of life. So I'll talk about those in a little bit more detail. Um, but first, I want to mention um, that we um, in oncology in general usually make the distinction between what we call relapsed versus refractory disease. Um, and so refractory would be that a patient really didn't respond, um, the tumor didn't shrink with the, with the therapy, whereas relapsed is that it did work, but it came back later. And typically in marginal zone lymphomas, as, as Dr. Strauss mentioned, they tend to be slow-growing. They do respond well to therapy. In many cases, they don't need therapy. So we tend to see relapsed disease more than refractory in this, in this disease. But it is important if we suspect that the disease has come back or is growing that we should do imaging tests. And we like to do PET CT scans if possible um, because those tests really help us see not just where the where the disease is, but also um, get a sense of the activity of it. Now, it is important to remember low percentage, but it is possible that slow-growing lymphomas like marginal zone can transform into faster-growing lymphomas, and those are treated differently with multi-agent chemotherapy. So we would definitely want to make that distinction, and often we'll do a re-biopsy, a second biopsy at the time of relapse to really ensure that we're dealing with the same lymphoma that we were dealing with initially um, and that it's not either a different disease altogether or a different type of lymphoma. And as Dr. Strauss mentioned, not all patients need to be treated. And even if the disease comes back, we don't even necessarily need to treat it. Um, if the patients are asymptomatic and, um, you know, and there's no um, major concern, like, for example, one reason we sometimes do treatment would be if someone's blood counts are quite low, we are concerned that they might be at risk for infection. Um, but if there's no indication like that, then people often do very well for a long time without treatment. Now, the management of relapsed disease would be highly dependent on the prior therapy. So, for example, um, Dr. Strauss mentioned that sometimes um, uh, therapies such as radiation might be indicated um, for certain types of, of areas of involvement. So if a patient has received radiation but has never had systemic therapy like rituximab, the monoclonal antibody that he mentioned that's against B cells, then rituximab would be a great option at relapse. 
if it, it if it's been used before, but it's been many years, so for example, three or four years since the patient last received it, rituximab often will work again later. Now, if it's in within a year or so, two years, it may not be effective, so we would probably reach to a different treatment at that point. Um, now, Dr. Strauss also mentioned that there are some chemotherapy agents that we use in certain circumstances. So one issue with rituximab is that it takes some time to work. So if someone's very symptomatic from their disease, um, for example, I had a patient just recently who had um, fluid around their lungs and was very short of breath, and that was really, we actually did a test and determined that that was from the lymphoma, and we really needed to get um, that person feeling better quickly. We often will incorporate chemotherapy. Um, so, for example, someone has already received rituximab, but then a couple years later it comes back, but we feel like they need a faster response. We might incorporate a chemotherapy with rituximab, such as bendamustine, which Dr. Strauss mentioned, and some, there are some other chemotherapy type approaches that we could use. Um, I do want to mention that there's a newer monoclonal antibody, um, sort of like rituximab, um, that doesn't technically have an FDA-approved indication in marginal zone lymphoma that's called obinutuzumab, and it's typically not given as a single agent in this disease, but potentially if someone had already received rituximab and had a relapse relatively soon and we wanted to give them another novel drug plus chemotherapy, we may consider um, giving obinutuzumab. And that actually brings me to a point that I wanted to make is that uh, marginal zone lymphoma is the second most common of the slow-growing lymphomas. The most common is called follicular lymphoma. And so many of the clinical trials that have studied this patient population has been primarily with follicular lymphoma. And sometimes we basically extrapolate or use the data that's obtained from follicular lymphoma patients to apply to marginal zone lymphoma. Um, and then some, like I said, luckily, um, some of these new agents have actually been specifically approved in marginal zone lymphoma, which has been really great for us and, and for our patients. Um, so I'm going to move on here to talk um, a little bit more about the transformation that I mentioned. So transformation can happen from a slower-growing lymphoma to a faster-growing lymphoma. Um, typically, if we do find that, we would treat with a standard chemotherapy regimen that's called RCHOP. That includes rituximab that we've been talking about, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and cristine, and prednisone. And um, that is a treatment that's typically given every three weeks for six total treatments. It's about an 18-week process. And that would typically cure the aggressive component. When this happens, actually, it's important to know that a patient is thought to have both lymphomas, both a slow-growing and a fast-growing lymphoma present at the same time. And so um, the, the fast-growing lymphoma would likely go away long-term with the RCHOP treatment, but the marginal zone lymphoma would likely go away for some amount of time, but at some point it would come back. Um, I think Dr. Um, Strauss had mentioned this, but generally speaking, if marginal zone lymphomas are not localized to one area, they're usually not thought of as curable. But that being said, they're, they're responsive and very treatable um, and um, often are very indolent for a long period of time. So people you know, live many years with this diagnosis. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the FDA-approved drugs that Dr. Strauss mentioned, abrutinib. So this is a drug that we have a lot of experience with in, in the lymphoma world. It's been FDA-approved for a disease called COL for years now and um, for other diseases like mantle cell lymphoma. So we have a very good experience and, and comfortable um, level of, of managing it. And generally speaking, it's a very well-tolerated drug. It's given orally. It targets specifically to the B cell receptor of the of the lymphoma cells, and um, basically it um, it is given once a day. Um, it has some side effects to to watch for, but I would say generally we're able to manage those side effects well. Um, one of them is um, diarrhea. I would say is probably the most common. Um, all um, treatments typically have a risk of causing low blood counts. We can give transfusions if we need to. We can give injections to help boost the blood cell counts if we need to do that. Um, and then a couple of, of um, other notable findings. This drug has an aspirin-like effect. So if someone is going to be getting a surgery or even a, like a dental extraction, we need to know about that because we usually hold it uh, for a few days before and after the procedure. And then it does have a risk of something called atrial fibrillation, which you all may know about, which is a heart arrhythmia, which is a very common issue. Um, it's not a contraindication to a brutinib, but there are some newer versions of 
brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitors like a brutinib that we sometimes try to get for patients if they have a reason not to be on a brutinib. Um, that being said, a brutinib is, is the only one that's actually FDA approved for marginal zone lymphoma, and that was based on a phase two clinical trial um, in which um, there was a good representation of all the different subtypes that, um, that Dr. Strauss went over, extranodal, um, splenic, and nodal. And all of those patients had had to have had rituximab or similar drug in the past. Most of them had gotten at least two prior treatments. And there was a notable high response rate. And, and so that led, that was the first oral drug that was approved, uh, oral targeted drug that was approved for marginal zone lymphoma. And the second one was just approved earlier this year. Um, Dr. Strauss mentioned a class of drugs called PI3 kinase inhibitors. There, there are about four now that are FDA approved for other other diseases, um, follicular lymphoma most commonly, uh, but umbrellisib, which is the new one, is the only one that's specifically approved for marginal zone lymphoma, and um, it is dosed one time per day. Um, most um, of these patients, so this actually was one of those clinical trials, like I mentioned, that has um, both marginal zone lymphoma and follicular lymphoma patients enrolled, as well as another type called um, small lymphocytic uh, or small lymphocytic lymphoma. So basically, um, most of these patients had received um, rituximab, and a lot of them had received chemotherapy too, and there was a, a notable response rate. Um, in the marginal zone lymphoma population, which led to its approval. Now, these types of drugs do have some side effects. Diarrhea and cough are, are a couple of them. It can cause fatigue, nausea, and vomiting. And so just like with the brutinib or any of the other therapies, it's important for you to keep in touch with your doctor about any side effects that you're having um, because we want to be able to address them quickly. Sometimes we'll take breaks from these drugs. So in general, these oral type of drugs are not given, at least in this disease at this time, for a set period of time, they're generally continued as long as they're working and the patients are tolerating them, they will continue um, indefinitely, basically. So um, it, we will sometimes take breaks if we need to, depending on um, particular symptoms. Um, now, I want to mention one other drug, um, that's lenalidomide. This is an oral drug that's actually well known to us from a different disease called myeloma. Um, it's been FDA approved for a number of years for that, and also I've used commonly for follicular lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma. Um, this is not technically approved for marginal zone lymphoma, but it is another good option off-label um, that did, uh, there is data to support its use of marginal zone lymphoma from large clinical trials. Um, and so that would might be another agent that your doctor would reach for um, should, you, um, should you need an additional therapy. Um, so I, I do think I spent quite a while on that section. So I'm going to go on to the other um, points that um, that I wanted to cover today. So um, some of the um, some of the questions that you might want to think about asking your healthcare team if you have either a new diagnosis or, or a relapse of marginal zone lymphoma is you want to ask if the doctor is really confident with the diagnosis. Now, Dr. Strauss did mention that sometimes marginal zone lymphoma is what's considered a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning it's not it doesn't have characteristics of for example, mantle cell lymphoma or follicular lymphoma, and so by default, it's marginal zone lymphoma. Um, and that's okay. I mean, a lot of times these indolent lymphomas, slow-growing lymphomas are treated similarly, but I would just ask the doctor if they're confident with the diagnosis and ask them if, if, they're, if they would consider having a second opinion on the pathology. Um, so even if you don't necessarily want to see another doctor, you could have the pathology sent, for example, to the NIH or to other institutions if there's an academic institution nearby, just to make sure that you're, you and your doctor are really confident that you have the right diagnosis. I would say that's the most critical part of, of uh, management of lymphomas is making sure the diagnosis is, is accurate. And certainly um, those, you know, I have a number of patients who have, um, who are treated close, somewhere closer to home um, by, a, by a local oncologist, but they sometimes come to me. And now we can do video visit consults too, which is helpful and makes it easier for patients. And so we're always happy to work with your local doctors to um, just for reassurance that your um, that your diagnosis is correct and that the management is you know is a reasonable approach. Unlike some other diagnoses in, in the field of oncology, marginal zone it can be a bit more subjective. As you've heard, there are a lot of different options for treatment, so there's not one right answer in most cases for this disease. But it is helpful sometimes to get the opinion of another doctor who may exclusively see lymphomas and may have more experience with marginal zone. Um, 
I would also ask your doctor what is the length of recommended treatment and the plan for monitoring, as well as what side effects are tri typical. And then I would ask them about clinical trials, and that's something that I'll, I'll move on to right after this. Um, so um, clinical trials are very important to um, uh, to our patients in um, in lymphoma, and part of that is because it really um, provides often new um, and even better tolerated and more effective therapies compared to the prior chemotherapy regimen. So in the past, we may have um, given someone rituximab, and then they may have gotten um, a rituximab and um, cyclophosphamide-based regimen like Dr. Strauss was talking about, and maybe then they would get bendamustine. And so generally speaking, like as we continue on with standard chemotherapies, they tend to be less um, less effective and less well-tolerated. And so these new therapies that I mentioned, they never would have come or been approved without clinical trials. Clinical trials are really essential for us to learn, you know, um, dosing and then effectiveness of new and, and toxicities of, of novel types of therapies. And they often give our patients, again, better options than they would have had with standard of, of care. And hopefully this will translate into better quality of life and increased survival. Um, and and uh, I just wanted to mention in the context of COVID-19, clinical trials continued. Um, the impact of COVID-19 may actually be in part that it helps us to simplify our clinical trial um, requirements to make it easier for patients, both for entry and continuation, um, to make them more patient-friendly. So, for example, uh, the majority of clinical trials allowed for virtual visits or um, video visits um, over the uh, height of the pandemic um, so that patients did not have to travel back and forth to their clinic as they had um, had to do before. And I've already really touched on this to some extent, just but just briefly, um, in addition to the clinical trial research, we often have critical laboratory partners. So I work with a doctor named Leandro Cerchietti here at Cornell, who is trained as a hematology um, doctor, but his focus now is working with preclinical models in lymphoma, where he studies new and promising therapies. And then based on what he finds, I work together with him, and we've been able to collaborate and open some clinical trials here at Cornell with very strong rationale. Um, and that's really, you know, an important aspect of our research process. Um, I wanted to touch on um, guidelines to prepare for telehealth and um, telemedicine appointments. So I would say I actually have found these to be um, often less stressful for both the patient and for me during, especially during the pandemic. You know, when you go in to see the doctor now, you have to wear masks, and that's sometimes hard to understand each other. And I found that doing the telemedicine visits have been, you know, more comfortable and also have um, allowed more family members to be present even than you would have in the office and has been, um, you know, really a, a positive experience for both sides, I think, in, in many cases. So I would recommend preparing as you would for a regular in-person visit, writing down any questions you have, and um, again, you may, you know, everyone's questions would be unique to their own situation, but I had already touched on some types of questions that I would ask, including about management options and side effects and follow-up plans, um, and um, I wanted to also address something called Open Notes, which you may have heard about. This is a recent initiative to en enable patients to view their records more easily, and that includes the notes that their doctors write. And I, th I think this has sometimes been stressful for both sides. I think patients are sometimes getting their records um, sent to them over the weekend or at a time when their doctor may not be available. And, and sometimes it's stressful to read through um, the information and really not know exactly how to interpret it. Um, we um, have, Some doctors have been recommending that you really wait until a weekday to, to access the records so that the doctor can be available if you have questions. Um, I also just wanted to note that um, in general, physician notes had previously been intended to be directed to other physicians, and so some of the information in the notes may be in wording that you may not understand. And I know many of us are working to try to edit these notes to be more patient-friendly in terms of language, but I just asked you to be patient with your doctors about this initiative because I think we're both, um, both parties are working through it, and, and um, I think we'll both become more comfortable as we get used to it. Um, but please, I urge you to, to reach out to your doctor if there's any, any aspect that you don't understand and they can help you. Um, now, I wanted to final um, uh, conclude really with a qual some quality of life concerns. 
quality of life is particularly important in this disease, um, while marginalizing lymphoma is, is thought to be curable in some situations, like we've talked about earlier, in general, indolent or slow-growing lymphomas are not thought to be curable, and therefore they are managed more like chronic diseases in which patients receive therapy intermittently as they feel symptoms. And so if a patient is feeling really well and there's no other indication that we need to treat, um, we can watch patients closely without doing any treatment. And that's really based on a number of studies and various types of lymphomas that have shown that um, that treating you earlier doesn't does not um, necessarily provide any major advantage, and that we would rather really reserve our therapies for a time when you're symptomatic, um, for you know, with the with the goal that you're going to live many years with this disease. And our goal is for you to live as long as possible, feeling as well as possible. So quality of life is really absolutely essential to this disease management. Um, so I, I advise you to stay in really close touch with your doctor. Um, I typically see people with this diagnosis every three months, at least initially, and it may be that the disease is growing so slowly that we space it out over time. But if, I, I always tell my patients to call me if there's any new issues that come up in the interim, even if they're not sure that it's related to the disease. So some examples may be persistent fatigue, pain, fevers, chills, night sweats, unintentional weight loss. Um, but, it, it, you know, this can be subjective. So if you have something going on that you just don't feel um, like you know what the reason for is, you should call your doctor to let them know, and they would likely want to see you sooner than the scheduled appointment, examine you, check labs, and possibly do an imaging test to help assess the status of lymphoma. And again, the goal of treatment of the marginal zone lymphoma is to improve how you feel. So treatment should really be tailored to your situation. And if you find that the treatment's making you feel worse and is difficult to tolerate, you should talk to your doctor about it. And they may be able to find a different treatment management strategy for you or give you a break from the treatment. And that's one reason why these novel therapies are it's so great that we now have so many options. So we're not limited as much as we used to be. We have we have some other, you know, drugs to, to uh, pull from if we really need to do a change in management based on your symptoms. But in general, my take-home message, which I've said uh, multiple times now, is that good communication between you and uh, your doctor is key for you to achieve the goal of feeling well while you were living with this disease. Now we'll conclude there, and I know we have a question and answer session coming, and I'll be happy to answer your questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. That was outstanding as well, and really uh, covering a lot of important topics. And and really um, addressing issues that I think will come up during the Q&A as well. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, then we're going to move right, um, um, and then we're going to, uh, um, so I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, it's a nonprofit organization staffed primarily by oncology social workers, about 35 of them. And um, we provide a host of services for people who are, um, are living with um, with all cancers um, and lymphomas, of course, as well. And those services include, so many people contact us on our Hope Line or visit our website and post a, their question or concern there. And they really often have a question or just are wanting some support, particularly, um, I have to say, we increased our staff by five people during the COVID um, period and we'll continue to have those staff here because we've had more and more um, people calling us for help and support, um, and it's not that people can't get support in their where they're going for their in their hospitals and in their communities as well. But it's an additional layer of support that people have been needing. Um, and um, so, in addition to just talking to one of our social workers on the telephone or on on, the, on our contacting us on the website. Um, we also offer case management, which means that if we don't have the service someone needs, we will connect you virtually to the service that you need. So we will go with you. We won't give you just a list of places to call on your own, but we will take you there and be sure that your need is met. And sometimes the, um, in your own community, there might be a service you didn't know about, or it could be in your region or nationally as well. We also offer and have historically, um, Cancer Care is about, was founded in uh, 1944, and we historically have always offered um, uh, practical financial assistance, practical and financial assistance, and we now, of course, have a co-payment assistance uh, program as well, foundation, which also offers significant help with the costs of some of the treatments that you may be having, um, and those are much larger grants. Um, we also have online support groups, and people really like those a lot because 
um, they are on all different topics, and they are also for all different uh, people. So for for um, people living with a particular type of cancer, or for caregivers, or for young adults. And we even have a, a Cancer Care for Kids program. Um, so we have lots of different services that we offer um, to people. Um, and people uh, really like the um, online uh, support groups because they happen um, 24 hours a day. One can post anytime one wants to. The social worker who's moderating that program will be on during business hours. But nevertheless, um, Eastern Time from 9 to 5, but nevertheless, people are posting to each other and all day long, and that's been very supportive to people because many times people do post on off hours. Um, and um, we also do have um, these workshops, about 75 of them per year, and we also have a number of publications that we offer. So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of the services that Cancer Care offers. Now, before we move to the Q&A, I just have another set of questions I just want to ask all of you um, before we move right to the Q&A. So um, I'm going to start with our um, our first question, and our first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I had greater knowledge of the important role of staging, location, and subtypes of marginal zone lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the treatment options for marginal zone lymphoma. And again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the treatment for relapsed refractory marginal zone lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now we just have two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with my healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage symptoms, side effects, and discomfort of marginal zone lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for marginal zone lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank all of you for participating in the questions. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board and to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Michelle and our speakers. Thanks. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Well, thank you. And we have an interesting question. This would be for Dr. Rutherford. Um, and this would be a question that I, Dr. Rutherford answered in a general way because this is a, an individual asking this for themselves. But what is the best chemo-free second-line treatment for marginal zone lymphoma? Can I just ask to repeat, did you say the best yes. chemo-free? What is the best chemo chemotherapy-free second-line okay. treatment for marginal zone lymphoma? So I would say we have um, the different classes of drugs available now, the Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor, Ibrutinib, and then the, the PA3 kinase inhibitor, Umbrilisib. I think from the standpoint of comfortability, we're, um, as doctors, more um, experienced with the Ibrutinib therapy. So I think most of us would use that in the second-line setting for a targeted drug over um, over the umbrilisib, but again, there may be certain reasons that one would be picked over the other. And then I also mentioned the um, lenalidomide um, with rituximab as another option, not FDA approved, but often you know, we are able to use that as well. So, but I, I think ibrutinib would probably be the most standard um, drug used in that situation if a targeted drug is uh, is desired. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, 
And um, a question uh, for Dr. Strauss. Does marginal zone lymphoma ever go away without treatment? I have nodal MZL and am and, and on, and, and on watch and wait. Uh, well, as really I think an important point today is that marginal zone lymphoma, lymphoma is often a chronic condition like diabetes or high blood pressure where the goal is to control it uh, even if it's not curable. I mean, I don't think hypertension is really curable either, I mean, or, or diabetes. Uh, the exception being uh, localized disease that really is localized, that there are no other sites below the level of detection that could show up later. Um, again, the, the the question, could you repeat it again for me? Oh, yes, certainly. Um, so... Um, does marginal zone lymphoma ever go away without treatment? I have nodal yeah. marginal zone lymphoma and am on watch right. and wait. Yeah. Um, I don't – some low-grade lymphomas, follicular, there's more – is more common, so there's more experience, can undergo – sort of spontaneous regressions, kind of wax and wane, if you will. Um, I will say about these that I have, I can't really recall in my many years of experience seeing a remission of disease where, it, it, you know, it disappears completely by it by by itself well no there occasionally it does and i i don't know whether the disease is really gone or whether it's just gone below the level of detection uh and you know whether it spontaneously cures sort of itself but definitely you can see waxing and waning of of lesions for example uh sometimes the marginal zone lymphomas of the skin uh, you'll have a skin tumor or a skin uh, uh, involvement of some sort that spontaneously goes away in that site, although often it'll show up again in another site. So I think I, I don't really know if 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 there really are spontaneous cures where it goes away and it's really totally away. More commonly, you can see waxing and waning uh, of the disease. And again, there's more experience, I think, with uh, follicular lymphoma in this. I'd be interested in what Dr. Rutherford might, uh, what her experience has been. Dr. Rutherford, do you want to? I agree exactly with what you said, Dr. Strauss, that I've had some patients where the lymphoma has decreased in size, and they can feel them in their neck, for example, or under their arms. But I think, you know, none of us as oncologists are comfortable saying the disease is really gone. Um, We don't image that often with this disease because, you know, if if we were going to be imaging you every six months, you'd get a lot, a lot of scans, with a, you know, which we we try to avoid if we we don't really think it's going to change our management plan. So I suspect if the lymph nodes get smaller, they're probably so thick and lymphoma cells around them probably will act up again later. Um, But I definitely have seen some patients have um, regression of lymph nodes at uh, intermittent time points. And then are they followed for some, like, are they seen on some type of schedule or how has that worked out in terms of their um, appointments and things like that? Well, I typically see them every three months at first. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, if the disease remains indolent, I may space it out to every six months. You know, some we have some patients that have been going years without any intervention, and some of them I even see once a year. But that would really be only after I've, it's been proven to me that the disease is particularly slow-growing and not doing much. Most of the time I see people every three to six months. Um, but, again, I think one of the most important aspects of care for these types of, of indolent lymphomas is that patients reach out to let their doctors know if there's any changes in the interim because that might prompt, a you know, a different management strategy such as a, a scan to reassess what's going on. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you both. That's excellent. Um, 
Um, so this is a, a question um, for Dr. Rutherford. I've been diagnosed with splenic marginal zone lymphoma. How do I decide whether or not I should remove my spleen? Well, that's a really good question, and I know that um, that uh, Dr. Strauss touched on that, that in the past, splenectomies were done much more commonly. Um, the, so typically, if, if this scenario happens, you so not always, but often what's going on in the bone marrow is the same as what's going on in the spleen. So often um, we're able to actually make this diagnosis based on a bone marrow biopsy. Um, and so, like, for example, if a patient has an imaging test that shows an enlarged spleen and no other lymph nodes that are, no lymph nodes or other sites of involvement, sometimes we make the diagnosis from a bone marrow biopsy. Um, and, you know, other times we may strongly suspect splenic marginal zone lymphoma, but, you know, it's actually a difficult place to biopsy the spleen. Uh, there are some places like our interventional radiology doctors here at Cornell will do a biopsy of the spleen, um, but it's not, um, it's not happen. It doesn't happen everywhere. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is that occasionally we need to do a splenectomy, not just for therapeutic, but also for diagnostic purposes, so we actually know exactly what the disease is. I think if we have enough evidence that there's a B-cell lymphoma going on, we can treat with rituximab, um, like Dr. Strauss mentioned, and often that will make the spleen um, normalize it, uh, over time. Um, so, I, you know, I would talk closely with your oncologist and your surgeon. The surgeon is going to be one of the key people uh, because, you know, sometimes the spleens can get quite enlarged. So a normal spleen is like around tw 12 centimeters or so at the, the upper length limit of normal, um, and sometimes that we see spleens that are 20 centimeters or like basically almost double normal, and that can be a pretty technically challenging surgery, and there are also some issues that can come up, most notably infection risk, so we always give people vaccines um, prior to doing a splenectomy. There's certain um, bacterial infections that you would always be at risk for if you had a splenectomy. So I would say most oncologists still favor avoiding the splenectomy if possible. Uh, but I, that being said, I definitely have done, you know, have, have referred to surgeons um, for it. I would say in particular, I would make sure your, your surgeon has experience doing this because they, they are not done as often lately. So I would ask them how many they've done and how, you know, especially recently, and you may actually want to go to an academic center for that type of surgery, just given that they're not as commonly done now. Uh, but it's definitely, it requires a lot of discussion between the different doctors involved, and it's a very good question. And, you know, that actually might be the type of question that you would want to get a, an opinion of a lymphoma doctor at an academic center, uh, because they they would probably have more experience with that than um, than a doctor who's, who sees, um, you know, all patients with all different types of diseases. Um, so um, th those are, that's my best guidance. That, that Dr. Strauss may have more to add to that. Dr. Strauss, do you want no, to add I com to that? I, I completely agree. I mean, in the past, before we had rituximab and more modern tools, the standard was to remove the spleen. And at times, there was an enlarged spleen, and that also gave a diagnosis. But these days, uh, I would say we don't usually start with that. We usually, uh, rituximab, I think, or rituximab with something else would be the first thing and second thing we'd try before going to splenectomy. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Great questions and a wonderful speaker. Wonderful speakers. Thank you so much. Um, um, and a question for uh, Dr. Um, Strauss. I have malt lymphoma and my doctor suggested to use antibiotics. Do I need chemotherapy as well? Well, it depends on what type of malt lymphoma. Uh, the most common one is of the stomach, and that there the infection is most associated with the lymphoma. And, treat, and it is established that treatment of the helicobacter bacteria, clearing that up can result in very long remissions and sometimes without relapses, without uh, radiation therapy or gastrectomy or chemotherapy. The other type of malt lymphomas that are <coughs> associated with infection, the results with antibiotics really have not been universally <coughs> seen. A lot of these have been more reports from Europe than from the U.S. So it depends on the type of malt lymphoma. If if he's talking about a gastric lymphoma and there is a helicobacter infection associated, I think the first step is very often, maybe most often, antibiotics. Thank you. 
Excellent. Um, and um, a question for um, Dr. Rutherford. When is a second biopsy appropriate in relapsed um, um, MZL? Oh, that's a great question. So um, I would say, you know, if, if someone has had treatment for marginal zone lymphoma, for example, rituximab, and then, you know, a couple of years later they're feeling lymph nodes again or fatigue, pain, you know, some sort of symptom that is concerning that the disease might be acting up again, um, we would typically want to do a PET CT scan if possible. Again, um, the, the reason for the PET portion is that it not only gives us the size of the lymph nodes, which we get from a CT um, portion, but it also gives us a sense of how active the cells are. So the mantra would, for us would be to try to biopsy the place that's the most accessible and most active looking so that we really get the um, like the, the uh, most, um, maybe the most fast growing portion of the disease. Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it's important to do that if relapse is suspected because um, like I said, it, it's possible that the lymphoma could have transformed to something uh, more aggressive or it could be a different disease altogether. That being said, we also have to be practical for our patients. So um, like, for example, if someone's relapsed a couple of times and they've already received a couple of therapies and then the disease, like the disease is acting up in the exact same place that it's been before, I don't always put people through a third or fourth biopsy. I mean, there, again, there are certain cases and it really needs to be tailored to your specific situation. Um, but I think, you know, there are, there are times when we use our clinical judgment and go on with a, with a treatment without doing a biopsy. Um, but, but certainly in a first relapse, I think it's important to do that. Thank you. And this will be our last question, and this is to Dr. Strauss. Is there a limit to the number of treatments of bendamustine? In other words, if someone relapses after previously having BR, can they get BR or B plus other CD20 agent? Uh, that, that's a, a bit of a hypothetical. I can tell you that I usually... I I I I consider this is a question about bendamustine, right? Bendamustine yes. rituximab. Yeah, I I usually do one and done. I mean, if if somebody, a lot of times you can have very prolonged remissions with this. Uh, I have never actually gone. I theoretically you could go back if you have a very long remission and use it again. But I haven't done that. This is a drug that has has really a very good profile for immediate toxicities, but is associated with uh, with immune deficiency. Uh, the lymphocyte counts, uh, the normal lymphocyte count goes down, and can, that can be quite prolonged. And there is some risk of uh of of increased infections both common infections and uncommon infections associated with this drug particularly in combination with uh an antibody like rituximab so it's a very good uh initial treatment i have not actually retreated with it i'd be interested in dr rutherford's thoughts I agree, with, I agree with you, Dr. Strauss. I mean, from the standpoint of the side effects, but also uh, just in general in, in uh, oncology, it tends to be that if you use the treatment before, it's not as likely to work as well again. Now, rituximab, I would say, is an exception that we do use multiple times in, in lymphomas, but chemotherapy, we tend not to. Um, and, and especially now, I need to really end on a positive note here, we have so many options now. Um, with these oral targeted drugs, that there's really no reason to go back to them the mustard again. We would really want to look for this more targeted approach, which often is better tolerated than bendamustine or, or other chemotherapies. Excellent. I want to thank you both. This has been an extraordinary uh, program today. I have to say we have done this workshop before. I've never had such great questions and never had such great, um, oh, just great connections between the participants and our speakers. It's, it's just been a phenomenal call, and I, I really want to thank um, thank you. It's, this has been quite the tour de force, and I, I know there are more questions in queue, so I do want to address them, but I do want to thank all of you because um, you've made this call so so informative to everybody. Um, and I, I do want to say something about the fact 
of the, the, those of you who still have questions because we could go on for another hour, but we don't. We, we said this would be an hour program. So, um, first of all, if you asked a question or if you have a question that you want to ask and plan to ask, or if you have a question that you've thought of, I want, we want you to go back to your treating healthcare team. That's really very important. And I also think that you've heard um, throughout this program that uh, you know that um, sometimes it is important to get an opinion from um, an NCI designated uh, cancer center. Sometimes, in terms of an academic center that actually um, has expertise in the treatment of marginal zone lymphoma, there could be situations like that. Um, and all of those centers have um, are accessible to you. Um, and to your healthcare physicians um, as well um, um, for for consult and to some extent um, and you also can contact the National Cancer Institute for information. So we'll give you at the end of this program. We're going to get a Survey Monkey evaluation. It is an evaluation of the program. We always appreciate you filling it out, but it also will include resources that you can contact um, to get further information. Um, there are also a number of nonprofit organizations specializing in lymphoma that actually have, have also can provide information. But we don't ever want to sidestep your healthcare team, and to some extent, they and your own treating healthcare physicians in terms of helping you with decision making and when it is a good idea to seek a second opinion or to kind of look into getting additional information. We also want you to be sure to go to credible sites. I know that many of you like to find more information out and, and talk, talk to your healthcare team. We want to be sure that any site you go to is is being reviewed this year, probably this month, um, that has very up-to-date information. And we will give you resources that are like that, that we would suggest that that's where you get your information from in addition to your healthcare team, that we don't want you kind of looking at, at something that someone has put on the website that, that may not have that credibility. We've chosen speakers today that are really experts in this field, and we want you, if you're going to be trying to get further information, that you go to your own healthcare team or go to credible resources that we think would be useful to you. Now, most importantly, we don't want anyone of you to leave today's program feeling you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a really large community of support um, and that there are a lot of resources out there for you. And it is normal to feel alone. Um, however, and that's a normal feeling to have. And I know it's been rather increased um, due to COVID at this time. But nevertheless, we're seeing some changes in different parts of the country and parts of the world as well. Um, in some areas, it's, it's different in different areas. So we do want you to know that you are simply a telephone call or a website away from contacting someone for help. That's most important. And your own, of course, your own healthcare team. And as a final comment, please always check with your healthcare team their availability um, weekends, evenings, and holidays. Those seem to be the three critical times when people seem to have big issues that come up and don't quite know who to contact and how to reach their healthcare team. So always get that information from them. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. You've been a phenomenal group of participants asking such great questions, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.